There's a saying, tell me the facts and I'll learn. Tell me the truth and I'll believe. Tell me a story and it will live in my heart forever. Now, Jesus was the master storyteller. And in that story that Toomey just read from us, probably the greatest short story ever told. Stories are powerful in whatever medium is used. I mean, one of the things that I'm sort of really missing about lockdown and this whole year of the pandemic is not being able to go to the cinema. And um, I love it when you can go to the cinema and you can choose, do I want this in, do I want to watch the film in 2D? Do I want to watch it in 3D? Got to pay a little bit extra for that. But of course, as you know, to watch a film in 3D, you need to wear um, these special glasses. And it's only as you put the glasses on that the action in the story, comes to life. And um, one time I heard this guy, he went and watched Avatar, and, uh, and he came out and he was like, man, that was amazing. Could you imagine if like, the whole of life was in 3D? It's like, it is in 3D. <laughs> it's like, bit of an idiot, stupid thing to say. But I think for giving the time to look at the context and the setting of stuff in the Bible, it's a bit like putting on 3D glasses. It gives us a new perspective. It helps bring the story to life. And the glasses through which we view this story is an ancient Middle Eastern culture. Now, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the religious leaders, the religious people, they had a massive problem with Jesus hanging out with sinners. So Jesus responds to their complaints by telling them a story. Now, this story has three main characters. There's the father, um, who re- the man who represents God. There's the older brother, who represents the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And then there's the younger son that represents these sinners. Now, the younger son goes up to his father and he asks for his inheritance. Now, in any culture, that's a pretty outrageous thing to do. But particularly in this Middle Eastern culture, it's like going up to his dad and saying, I wish you were dead. It's incredibly shameful. It's a completely shameful request. And in this strong honor, shame culture, the expected response of the father would have been to throw his son out. But this father doesn't respond like that. He gives him what he wants. Having heard that intro to this story, Jesus' listeners would have got they would have his attention. They'd really be leaning in. Now, the father takes two hits. First, the shame of his son even asking for his inheritance. And second, the shame of going through and actually delivering on it. And Jesus' listeners would be thinking, what kind of a father is this? In verse 13, it says, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country. He acts quickly He basically sells his inheritance for cash because you obviously can't take all you have with you if it's property or land or whatever. So he sells everything. Again, another massively shameful thing to do because the expectation would be that he would come back and look after his dad when his dad was old. And this piles on the shame even more for his father. And now traditionally, the older son would have inherited three quarters of the father's estate and the younger son, the third. Now, I'm not a 
massive landowner myself, but, you know, picture this. You, you're in a house, you live and you own in this house, and then you have to sell a third of it, and you've got someone else, a, potentially a complete stranger, who's living in part of your house. And so the father and the, and the older brother are daily face-to-face with this reminder of the shame that has been caused by the younger son and the hurt. And why the hurry? So, it's, well... One reason, it could be just super awkward hanging around the house after you've made such a request like that. But it wasn't just home that he had to worry about. The younger son had to worry about the entire community. Because once they had heard about the son's request, which was as good as the son denying his whole sort of family genealogy, his whole family line, again, massively shameful, the whole anger of the village would have stirred. And as Jesus is telling this story... The listeners at this point would have one thing in their mind. They're thinking about something called the Kezazar. Now, the Kezazar is a Jewish ceremony, and it literally means cutting off. When a former member of um, a village had gone away, spent all their money um, with the Gentiles, and then tried to return the village to the village, he would be met at the village gate by all the villagers and all the people in the community. They take this massive, large clay pot and they would fill it with burnt corn and uh, nuts, and they basically would smash it into hundreds of pieces at sort of the border of the village, marking him, banishing him as being an outcast, marking him as an outcast, and cutting him off. So mindful of this rising anger in the village, the son legs it. And he goes a long way from home and he spends his money on wild living. A better translation of the original word in the Greek would be extravagant, wasteful or expensive living. Then the money ran out. There's a severe famine in the land and he was in great need. He's done the unthinkable. He's lost his inheritance to the Gentiles. And he knows the Kezazar ceremony awaits him unless he can find a job that pays, that he could basically save out all that money again to recoup the money that was lost. Now, could things get any worse for him? Then he gets a job feeding pigs. You might just think, oh, you know, it's a job. It's a job. Some people love it. Some people choose to be a pig farmer. Other people, not so much. I love word association games. And um, before I was married, my maiden name was Trotter. And um, so, (laughs) a few people laughing. I lived with that name for a number of years until Martin saved me. And then, um, and my dad was a police officer when we were growing up. So, there were a few funnies in the village where I lived, who every so often would just go, hey, Trotter, your dad's a pig. And I'd be like, thank you, yeah, very funny, very original. Um, And when I asked my sons, one of my sons, what do you think of when you think of pigs? He said, Percy. I mean, who doesn't like a Percy pig? And um, sadly, even Percy pigs have been impacted by Brexit. But um, who doesn't love a Percy pig? But for for the Jew... The association with pigs wasn't police and it wasn't Percy, but it was the most disgusting thing. Pigs were the most disgusting things to Jews. They were considered unclean. They were the ultimate symbol of loathing. They wouldn't eat them. They wouldn't even go anywhere near them. So in this story, it tells us not not only had the son lost his inheritance to the Gentiles, but he was now working with pigs, feeding the pigs and longing to eat even what the pigs were eating. He really had gone far, far away from his community, 
from his family, and as far away from his father as he could possibly get. And finally, he comes to his senses. And as is so often in stories, it's the bit where the character tells us his motive. He says, I'm starving to death, basically. And he sums up what he's going to do as he talks to himself in the field. And I imagine it's almost a bit like um, sort of a film director, a little bit Miranda Hart style. You know, he sort of eyeballs the camera and sort of says, I will set out. I will go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and I have sinned against you. I am no longer worthy to be called one of your sons. Make me like one of your hired men. And at first glance, I think we could read that story, very familiar story to many of us, and it looks like he's hit rock bottom and he realizes the error of his ways and he decides to head home in humility and repentance. But again, this is where these these 3D glasses help us to understand the context and the setting of this story. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law who were listening to Jesus, who, who knew the scriptures well, the line in the story, I have sinned against heaven and against you, was very well known to them because it was the exact phrase that Pharaoh said to Moses in Exodus chapter 10, verse 16, when he was trying to manipulate Moses into stopping the plagues. Everyone knew that Pharaoh in that story wasn't repenting, he just wanted the plagues to stop. And this son's statement was the same. He wasn't plagued by sin, as it were. He was being manipulative. He was still looking out for number one. For him, this wasn't about repentance, but it was about refreshments. Do you see what I did there? Do you like that? I was quite pleased with that. I love that sort of thing. In verse 17, it reveals that he knows that his father's workers had what they needed and food to spare. He's motivated by wanting to eat. And he makes a plan to go back to his father to allow him to say, can you come back even in the capacity of an employee? So then he works out his speech to soften the anger of the father. And he has three lines. One, I have sinned against heaven and I have sinned against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And then comes the request, can I come on staff? It's a little bit like when my boys come up to me and they say, mum, I've done all my homework. I've tidied my bedroom. Can I have a go on screens? You know, there's an ulterior motive to that request. He's thinking if he can recover the lost money through working for his father, then he would have earned his way back. If he could pay back the debt himself, then he can restore himself. So verse 20, he got up, goes to the father. And how did the father respond? Well, it says that while he was a long way off, you know, they didn't just bump into each other. The father was there looking, scouring, looking, longing for his son, waiting for him to come home. And it says that his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he didn't know what his son was going to say. He had no idea of the speech that was prepared. But just at the sight of him, he was filled with compassion And he ran to the son and he kissed him. Now, I imagine this in the whole movie style. You know, long grass, the orchestra is playing, the lights is that sort of, um, what do they call it, a golden hour, you know, where the golden light is showing. And I'm imagining the son running toward, um, the father running towards the son. But again, with our 3D glasses on, 
How does the Middle Eastern cultural context help us see this scene? And for those of us, um, for those of them who are listening to the story, they're expecting a clay pot moment. Jesus' listeners at the time are thinking, this is when the community come out, the Kezizar ceremony. And second, a dignified Jewish man would never run. The men wore, wore long robes. It's a bit like me trying to hitch up my dress and run. It's hard to run. It's very, very undignified for a father to have done something like that. Completely unacceptable. And his actions, again, making him look foolish, um, piling on shame again, um, once, once again in front of the community. But the father runs because he knows that if the community get there first, they would perform the Kezazar ceremony and his son would be cut off and humiliated. He has to get there first. So the father chooses himself to be humiliated in order to bring his son home. What kind of a father is this? And the son begins his speech, but he doesn't complete it. Not because he's interrupted by the father, but because in the father's embrace, he chooses not to. He encounters his love and he accepts being found. And let's not forget, this is all happening. This is all being played out at the edge of the village. This was very public. And then the father says to the servants in verse 22, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Now, a robe, it wasn't because he was chilly. A robe was a, a, a symbol of distinction, of, um, of a status, of honor. And the best robe was probably only used three, um, on the three feast days of the year. It symbolized his shame being covered and restoration. And then the ring. This would have been a signet ring, which represents authority. The son, having had the ring, could act on behalf of the father in proxy to him, sealing letters and documents and sandals. You know, slaves and servants went barefoot, but sons wore sandals. All these things were a complete restoration and acceptance of the son from the father, restoring reinstating him in full sight of the whole community and knowing the depth of acceptance that the father extends to the son the community now for the sake of the father accept the son too and they celebrate they by they kill the fat calf they have a party the son he deserved rejection but what he gets is reconciliation and he gets a reception. He gets a party. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. Then we come to the story where the older brother comes in. He says he was on his way home from the field. And as he approaches the house, he can hear music. And it's one of those things, isn't it? I mean, obviously, we haven't had parties for a very, very long time. I remember back in the day that sometimes if you heard a party but you weren't invited to it, it's actually really annoying. If your neighbours are having parties, and people that live across the road from us often have these loud parties, and I don't want to just, you know, shout out the window. Um, but I was gracious. But, um, but it's really annoying, isn't it? If you can hear a party but you're not actually a part of it and the older brother gets angry and he refuses to go in so his father goes out to him and he pleads with him but the older brother doesn't listen and he has this massive strop 
He moans about not having as much food as he'd like to have with his friends. He accuses the father of favoritism. He's raging out of control. He can't even bring himself to speak of his brother, but refers to him in verse 30, this son of yours. He doesn't even associate himself with his brother and accuses him of sleeping with prostitutes. He's revealing himself. He's revealing his heart to his father that he feels like he needs to earn his father's love in some way. In all this, he was being as equally disrespectful to his father as the younger son had been. It was in view of everyone. And again, the father could have responded with anger, but he doesn't. Instead, he responds with love and he invites him to join the party. What kind of a father is this? Like any good story, the story's left on a cliffhanger. How will the older brother respond? How will the younger son react and live now? And sometimes when a biblical story is left like this, it's an invitation for us to ask ourselves, where do we fit in the story? What kind of a father is this? What's your view of God I hate making mistakes. I often struggle, actually, with feeling like a mistake. Um, I'm uh, 360 days younger than my older brother. So for five days of the year, we're the same age. And there are sometimes I used to think that was really cool. I'm a bit like, do you think we're twins? Because we're exactly the same age. I'd be like, actually, we're not. Um, but and my sister is three years older than me. Don't worry, I'm not going to run you through the whole like family birthdays and everything like that. But when I was born, my older brother and sister, you know, we were, my parents basically had three children under the age of three. And so it was quite full on. And I remember my mum and dad, they were amazing. They would always be so encouraging, so affirming. They were like, Emily, you, you were such a good baby. You were a wonderful surprise. You were no trouble at all. Um, always just really content and really compliant. And, but it didn't take me too long to realize, gosh, that's quite a tight age gap, isn't it, between having children. I, I don't think I was planned I think they say I was a wonderful surprise, but even in their attempts to just always be encouraging, always be affirming, I somehow heard, um, you're an inconvenience. I somehow heard, um, you weren't planned, you're sort of almost in the way. That's how I sort of translated their words. And over the years, if I was given an opportunity or something that was a, what I considered a real privilege, there's a part of me that always felt like, this is, this is a mistake, like I'm a mistake, I shouldn't be given this opportunity or I shouldn't have this responsibility. And I think for me, some of that lives out with that sense of I need, to, I need to earn, I need to achieve to be given anything, I need to achieve and earn love to justify myself. And I think sometimes that can trip into my own relationship with God too, feeling like I have to earn his love. And the truth is, we've all made mistakes. The younger son made those mistakes we read in the story and then tried to earn his way back. The older brother, he made the mistake of, even in his father's house, feeling like he had to earn his father's love. They were both lost. It just looked different. But this story is about God's amazing grace. 
And for those of us who have gone off, deliberately wandered off and done our own thing, that's the grace is for you. And for those of us who have never sort of left the house, as it were, and yet somehow still feel lost, there's grace for you. What kind of a father is this? God is a father who looks for you. Motivated by love, he runs to you. Filled with compassion, he forgives completely and wholly. And he clothes you with dignity and honor. And it's through Jesus that we can know our God, this our heavenly father. Jesus went to the cross and he took my my sin, your sin, the sin of the whole world on him. He took all our guilt, all our shame. He chose to be humiliated for our sake. He was, for a time, cut off from the Father for our sake. So that ultimately, we could choose to come home to God. Whatever you've done, you are a child of God. You can't earn it. You're loved. And so the question left to us is how will you respond to the Father's love? And wherever you are, you can do that right now as we worship.